Hello and welcome to Coppola Connections, the podcast where I'm trying to find out are the Coppolas the greatest film family of all time? And the way I intend to do that is to shake every single branch of the family's filmography to find out the answer to that question. On the last episode, I was joined by Helen O'Hara to talk about 2001's The Princess Diaries. This week, we're skipping forward three years to look at 2004's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, directed by Wes Anderson. And to join me on this deep sea adventure is George McGee of the Retro Ramble podcast. Be thinking to yourself, hang on a second, Petros. It's Tuesday. What are episodes doing dropping on a Tuesday? Well, if you didn't see the post on social media or heard the little PSA I left at the end of last episode, this is the new normal, ladies and gentlemen. Episodes will be released on Tuesdays from here on out. There is a reason behind it, but it's very boring. As is always the case on this podcast, we will be doing a deep search into this film. There will be no stone unturned. There will be no Jaguar shark unhunted as we look at this film. So there'll be spoilers aplenty. If you'd like to find out if and where this film is streaming, do be sure to check out a handy little document in the show notes. Unfortunately, there isn't any Patreon bonus content for this episode. However, one thing I would like you to do is head on over to cagedinpodcast.limitedrun.com to pick up either a pack of pins or one of the prints that are on sale because at the moment, a high percentage of the proceeds from all of that is going towards charitable donations to women's aid and refuge so all that's left to do is to stick on some bowie your adidas zizus and a red beanie as we make some coppola connections supposedly cousteau and his cronies invented the idea of putting walkie talkies into the helmet but we made ours with a special rabbit ear on the top so we could pipe in some music the Belafonte, home to Team Sisu. Skilled crew of deep sea divers, adventurers, documentary filmmakers. Action! Led by internationally renowned oceanographer Captain Steve Sisu, expert on every aspect of marine life. Swamp leeches, everybody! Check for swamp leeches! Nobody else got hit? I'm the only one? What's the deal? But there remains one form of life about which Captain Sisu knows very little. You're supposed to be my son, right? I want you on Team Sisu. The answer's yes. Well, it's got to be. I'll order you a red cap and a speedo. Oh! This will be Team Sisu's most ambitious adventure to date. I'm going to go on an overnight drunk, and in 10 days, I'm going to set out to find the shark that ate my friend and destroy it. What would be the scientific purpose of killing it? Revenge. You must swear, legally swear, that you'll not kill that shark. Split into two groups. I'll take Ned, Ogata, and Wolodarski. Thanks. Thanks a lot for not picking me. We're being led on an illegal suicide mission. I'm going to fight you, Steve. You never say, I'm going to fight you, Steve. You just smile and act natural, and then you sucker punch it. 
Are you finding what you were looking for out here with me? I hope so. Quiet out there tonight. Can you hear the jack whales singing? It's beautiful. I wonder what they're saying. Well, that was the sludge tanker over there, but there you go. 2004, we saw Jason Schwartzman and his mother Talia Shire in I Heart Huckabees. John Schwartzman was the DOP for Meet the Fockers, and Nicolas Cage stole the Declaration of Independence in National Treasure. Elsewhere, we saw the release of Roman Coppola's first film with Wes Anderson, acting as second unit director on the focus of this week's episode, the adventure comedy drama The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. To join me in my search for the mythic Jaguar shark and hopping aboard the good ship Bellafonte, with me is the new recruit and unpaid intern to Team Coppola Connections. Retro Ramble podcast host, George McGee. How are you, George? I'm good, thanks, Petros. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's, 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 all, it's, all my, it's all my pleasure. So um, <laughs> bef- before, we, before we get talking about the Coppola family, tell us a little bit about um, Retro Ramble. What is it you guys do over on that podcast? Uh, so Retro Ramble is a, a podcast that my brother Charlie and I do, and it's essentially us revisiting the films that we grew up with. Um, so mainly the sort of uh, blockbusters of the 80s and 90s. Um, so that could be anything from, you know, classic things like Goonies, Back to the Future, to, you know, uh, action classics, Predator, Commando, Die Hard, um speed aliens that sort of thing um so yeah it's it's usually 80s and 90s but it's a chance for us to go back and say what made those films so great do they still <laughs> hold up a lot of them are still part of franchises or have been remade so it's seeing how they they stack up today so and yeah it's just a good way of uh, of charlie and i staying in touch and just chatting about films perfect man it's a, it's always great and it's great to see that there's a couple of uh Nicolas Cage films in there. I've, I've, I've listened to your episodes on The Rock and uh, Face Off, I believe. No, Con Air. Yeah, yeah. So we, we we've done that that uh, Holy Trinity, that action <laughs> trilogy. Uh, I think Face Off was actually the first episode we did. So we did Face Off and Air Force One as like our first episode, and I'm sure you're the same or every any podcast is the same you're sort of a little bit you know you, you cringe a bit when you think back to your first episode so in my mind i'm i'm quite tempted to do redo face off again like a a, yeah, a, re, a remake of sorts um but yeah we've we've done them yeah that, that uh were they all, all in the same year was it all 97 or it might be 97 to 98 so you've got the, the rock no rock's 96 it's face 96 97 97 because yeah. there's like there's a ridiculous overlap between conair and face off filming and I think it was like they came out within like a three month window. So like I can just only imagine what what a, the summer of '97 would have been like. It's like yeah. you get that kind of assault of that ramshackled team in Con Air, and then next thing you know, you've got Cage and Travolta facing off in Face Off. It's like fucking hell. <laughs> so yes, uh, I say we've we've done the the I say it's, it's a bit like a, a the action trilogy for Cage, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the testosterone trilogy is what uh, what I've coined it uh, here mm. on Caged In. Um, so let's talk about the Coppola family. When did you first become aware of them? Was there a specific person, or when did you become aware of them as like an entity? Um, well, yeah, it, it does all start with um, Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola, Coppola. Let's call the whole thing off. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, I mean, I have always been a bit of a, a film geek. I probably started reading Empire magazine when I was about 14, mm-hmm. something like that. So obviously, you know, you, you become aware of the classics, you know, like um, Godfather. And I think that was it, you know, it seemed a bit weird. I mean, I, d- I don't know um, if it was the same for you, but it seemed like there was a bit of a a craze in the sort of mid to late nineties about gangster films. Like mm-hmm. all the rappers were really into them. So like Scarface, Goodfellas, The Godfather, and everyone had the posters. And I remember some of my mates had the posters, but hadn't even seen the films. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously the Godfather poster is, you know, it's iconic, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, so, and it is, you know, one of those things on like a bit like Pulp Fiction on many students' bedroom, you know, walls and things like that. So, yeah, I think it all stems back with him, but, um, obviously, yeah, the more I read, then you hear about more of the connections. So, um, and obviously I read, uh, oh, it's probably a long time ago now, but I read Easy, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which is a fantastic book. Um, so I knew about him as the, are they the movie brats like him, Spielberg? Yeah. Yeah, Lucas De Palma and Scorsese. Um, and then, yeah, you just sort of, through being a film geek, you read about the the connection. So in terms of, I think at that point, obviously, Sofia Coppola was just known as the bad actress in Godfather <laughs> 3. Um, and yeah, I knew, I think I knew the Talia Shire connection. And I don't think I immediately knew that Cage was, a, Nick Cage was a Coppola. Um, but yeah, I, I did know that. And then, yeah, sort of, it kind of all sort of expanded from from there. So, yeah, it all started with Francis. Um, but, yeah, I'm a big fan of of the other connections as well. Yeah, they're, they're a fascinating family in the, the fact that there is this kind of, they have a little bit of something for everyone. So it's like you've got your, I don't know, Nicolas Cage is almost like a, a genre unto himself. And then... <laughs> <laughs> yes, he is. You've got, yeah. You... But say that, you know, um, Francis Ford Coppola has done some really diverse films, hasn't he? Yeah, that is the thing. And I think is that that uh, four film run in the 70s, everybody holds up and then everything else they kind of don't really look at. And there's like some some really interesting and great stuff within there i think like that that double like run of uh the outsiders and rumblefish in the 80s is fantastic i can't see it like that's something uh charlie and i have talked about maybe doing as a as a feature for, for our podcast for like classic films that we haven't got around to seeing and the outsiders is one of them because that's got so many people in that in their like one of their first films isn't it you know it's all so many iconic 80s actors yeah so yeah you got like Ralph Macchio, you got uh, Cruz. Uh, yeah, before Matt he Dillon. got his teeth done. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so yeah, I haven't actually seen uh, Outsiders or, or Rumblefish, but yeah, they're sort of on my to watch list at at some point. Well, perfect. I would uh, if if you take anything away from this podcast, that's a recommend from me. Those two. Um, so the con- the Coppola connection for this time around is it Roman Coppola? So yeah, this would have been Roman Coppola uh, acted as second unit director on this film um so i i have to admit actually i didn't i, didn't, I hadn't <laughs> heard of roman coppola so after, after with all my sort of film knowledge of the coppola the extended family when i when you sent me the list of potential films i was like ooh roman coppola i was like but then i looked at the films i was like yep yeah, let's go for that so <laughs> i wasn't actually overly aware you know i say i know sophia coppola no talia shire I even know is it Jack Schwartzman um, who produced uh, Never Say Never Again? Because yep. I'm a big Bond fan as well. 
so I didn't even know about him. But yeah, Roman was a complete. I was like, oh, there's another one, and he's and he's a, a director as well, or you know, mainly an assistant director. But uh, it was news to me. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one with Roman because uh, the the Coppola family own a winery, and there's a of course Sof- they do. There's a Sophia <laughs> wine, and there's a Gia Coppola wine, which is Roman and Sophia's niece. But then Roman doesn't have a wine. So it almost feels like even within the family, there's this kind of snub to him. And uh, <laughs> I, I always have this image of like Christmas dinners. And because he hasn't won an Oscar, he's nominated for one for co-writing Moonrise Kingdom that like his dad's like, no, go sit at the kids table, Roman. Like, you know, <laughs> and, but it's crazy. Like he You're looked, no good to me, Roman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's the, he's the, um, He's the Fredo Corleone of the Coppola family, <laughs> I guess. Uh, oh, come on, guys. Give me a break. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's kind of uh, in my fictionalized version of the Coppola family. That is that is very much who he is. But he's he's an interesting character because he's he's kind of got his fingers in this, like, what I, yeah, it's like uh, what I'm calling like a surrogate uh, cousin to the Coppola family, which is Wes Anderson. He's kind of like... He's there in the background of all of his films, whether it's like co- yeah. co-writing the Darjeeling Limited and um, even second unit stuff. He he does it for like he's done it for Jack. He did like second unit for a load of Sophia Coppola's films. So there's like this kind of he's always there. And like, yeah, yeah. So um, so that's our connection for this one. So n- well, you you had no idea of Roman Coppola. So I guess you don't re- remember the first time you saw a, a film that he had his fingerprints on it. So. Well, well, looking into it, it does actually seem, and I'm a little bit ashamed to admit, it does seem like it is um, Jack. <laughs> so, yeah, that is one of the the random ones I remember seeing that. I think I saw that at the cinema. Oh, boy, um, oh boy. yeah, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, uh... yeah pr- probably when I was, because I was too young to watch any other sort of couple of films. Like, oh, yeah, t- go see another Francis Ford Coppola film. It's, yeah, it's about a guy that's really old but he's actually a child yeah i i recently read the reason he took on that script was because it chimed with him because he had polio as a child okay and I, I was like there are there are different ways to to portray that in a film than doing a film about a kid who grows up too fast it's like no 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 <laughs> and i i think coppola is a director who very much works best under pressure as we see with kind of like yeah uh, apocalypse now a film that's kind of like when he's got the studios and hollywood like breathing down his neck it's like here's a fucking masterpiece and it's like (laughs) when he's when he's when he's fed and watered and rich it's like here's jack here's jack yeah Yeah. deal with it here's a mediocre grisham adaptation (laughs) (laughs) so what is your relationship to this film and when did you first see it george um, I remember having fond memories of seeing this when I was at uni in Manchester. I remember it was a, a, a sort of a favourite of me and, and my friends. I'm pretty sure we saw it at the cinema, but I just, I, and, and definitely sort of revisited on DVD. But I just, yeah, have really fond memories. And I think I even went as far like this shows my age all the time. I remember um, downloading some of the soundtrack via LimeWire for Amazing. like. <laughs> So yeah, um, yeah. Listening to a bit of uh, Sue George, is it the yeah. uh, the Brazilian guy? Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, some really yeah, fond memories. And I don't know. For me, like I'd, I say I'd, 
I was uh, I knew of uh, Wes Anderson. I'd seen his. I think I'd seen all his other films up there because I think Rushmore like had such a, a, a such a claim when it came out, especially mm-hmm. like in Empire magazine. I remember them talking about it, and I think I went back retroactively to watch Bottle Rocket. Um, Royal Tenenbaums, I liked, um, but for this, yeah, for Life Aquatic, it's it's weird. It's I I think it's a bit like. Uh, to use like a, a Bond sort of metaphor, it's a bit like Goldfinger. It's almost like when Wes Anderson got his formula right mm-hmm. um, with with all those different elements. I mean, yes, you've got the big all-star cast in World Tenenbaums, but this has that sort of mixture of everything, the, you know, the Henry Selleck animation, the really sort of whimsical, crazy sort of offbeat story, um, and a little bit, whereas I think obviously Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums are very New York sort of yes. upper class type thing so this felt different but i think for a lot of people it kind of was the first wes anderson film it was kind of the wes anderson mainstream film in a way yeah and it's like i think at the time it was a big a big commercial and critical failure so like yeah i i was surprised doing the research on it i was really surprised when i read that i was like i remember it being you know another like oh yeah it's another another wes anderson classic but that obviously wasn't wasn't the case. I, th- I think it's that thing that now, obviously in retrospect, we kind of look at it, and because it's got such a, a prescience and kind of it's out there in the cultural zeitgeist and it's kind of like pe- like fancy dress parties, people will be dressing up, and it's kind of gained this like cult following almost. That yeah, people, that people kind of look back at it and go, "It must have always been great." Whereas, like at the time, yeah, for like a. 50 million dollar budget it only made like uh 34.5 which is like yeah and i know that to, to ask you because was it quite a step up budget wise from royal tenenbaums because as i say i imagine that's all on location in new york that's going to be relatively cheap whereas filming this all around italy isn't it well I, yeah I believe. It, it's around italy and it's on real boats so like it's going to be pricey yeah and it's like uh, Wes Anderson has since said there are there are aspects of this film that he would never do again so it's like filming night shoots on a boat he's like well now I would just yes. do that on a soundstage it's like it's absolutely freezing like but it kind of became attached to to the Belafonte in that like they had shipped it all the way from South Africa to to the Mediterranean Sea so they could have it in Italy and they kind of I think it's that thing but it's interesting for the film because it's almost like the filmmaking process is Wes Anderson is almost like Steve Sizu it's like I, I don't just want to to make this film I want to live this film and I, I, I kind of like that when talking about like the Coppola family because it, it feels like a Francis Ford Coppola move to do. There's a, yeah, it's ridiculous, the attention to detail. And, you know, there's not just um, the, um, it's not just the filming on the boat, as you say, it's it's the fact that they obviously have replicated the boat, you know, to do that, you know, cross section, which is amazing. And with the camera moving around, and I love all that stuff. I mean, it just adds to that Wes Anderson-ness. I mean, it's, it's really weird to say, but even in the opening frame of just like the music and the font, mm-hmm. and you like you know it's a Wes Anderson film. Yeah, and it's it? so. Before we kind of get into what this film is about, do you mind kind of giving us uh, a brief setup for the film, if you could? 
Uh, okay, so it's a bit of a tricky one because this film is a lot of things. <laughs> so, um, the, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is a about a an oceanographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, a, a, um, a Jacques Cousteau, very much a Jacques Cousteau type uh, guy who does um, you know, ocean underwater documentaries. And it opens with his latest documentary where his best friend is killed by a mythical jaguar shark. Uh, and so he dedicates um, his his next film to hunting the shark down as, a, as a, an act of re- revenge. Uh, but along the way, he meets his, possibly his illegitimate son, uh, played by Owen Wilson. Um, he encounters uh, pirates. Um, as well as hunting for the the mythical uh, jaguar shark, and there's his band of sort of misfits on his his ship, the the Belafonte. Is, is is that good enough? For you? That's that that's perfect. And there's kind of like <laughs> there's a lot of moving parts in this film, right? So I guess like a, before we kind of get into it, a, a good place to start is talking about this mammoth cast that we have in this. It's kind of like uh, well, now it's like a who's who of. Uh, Wes Anderson regulars and kind of some some odd choices and it's all some great choices in there as well well that's it I yeah I think obviously as I say he kind of started it with uh Royal Tenenbaums that was mm-hmm. quite a cast he'd collected on that and it does seem like that again it's a Wes Anderson trait it's like how many crazy people can I get in one film um yeah so but we- yeah there's there, there's it's actually what if I haven't seen this film in probably uh, maybe four or five years and I've forgotten like all the people that crop up so I forgot about Michael Gambon popping up mm-hmm. in it um and um who else now and yeah you, there's is, there's just so many great characters that pop up and even if they have a tiny amount of screen time they're you they leave you wanting more in a way you want to sort of know more spend more time with them yeah and it's like well for me a person who kind of steals the show in this film is Willem Dafoe and he kind of <laughs> He kind of Klaus. Yeah, he says in interviews that he he didn't really like. He would look at his call sheet and it would be like, "I got two lines today," but then like it's all the stuff he's and, and because I guess it's the way that Wes Anderson works and like you said earlier, this is the first film where he kind of really refined his style in that like stuff's mm. going on in the background all the time and it's like even it and it's it, it's great for rewatchability because it's like. Oh, you're you're they're kind of walking around the ship, and it's like, what's Cla- like, what's Klaus doing, or do you know what I mean? What's um, what's uh, I'm tr- trying to think, Vikram doing? They've kind of got all these like different characters doing their own little things, and yeah, Willem Dafoe is just like fantastic, and has some of the best lines, I think. Because I think it's the funniest that Willem Dafoe's been. I mean, mm-hmm. it's you know shows his sort of his comedy chops, and yeah, he has, as you say, he has some of the funniest lines like that interplay between him and Owen Wilson where they're like they're sort of trying to out tough each other um and and Klaus just keeps breaking I I love the line that Klaus says when uh Ned threatens him and he says like next time next time you touch me I'm gonna I'm gonna knock your teeth out and he's like not if I see you first Sonny and it's like it kind of makes no sense but it's just like I, I, it's perfect in the way that it's like it's threatening but also absolute gobbledygook that you're coming out with right now. Um, yeah, and there's the moment when um, Owen Wilson slaps him back and he's like, we're even now. He's like, but no, I need to hit you back. He's like, no, because then we wouldn't be even again. <laughs> he's like, it's not fair. So 
let's talk about the kind of opening of this film. What do you kind of make of this this uh, festival? Like, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be like a an Italian film festival setting in in a world in which uh, documentaries about jaguar sharks are kind of the prized film, the kind of opening film for a festival. Yeah, and the and the equivalent of the Royal Albert Hall or something. It's a very grand, you know, surrounding, and it's a great sort of juxtaposition because. Yeah, the the, the 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 documentary itself, and again, it just goes down to sort of, I don't know how you describe it, just the Wes Anderson weirdness or the kitschiness of the fact that it's all like clearly done on a studio and it's mm-hmm. clearly like, you know, stop motion fish and stuff like that. And I don't know, it just kind of, it just adds to the charm really, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's beautiful in the way that it sets everyone up as well, because obviously you kind of... Yes, very and- much so. And you get that that impression that it's like all of like Steve Zissou's worlds are colliding at once because you kind of like characters are brought in, whether it's like somebody we assume he's had a fling with in the past who he tries to like kiss on the cheek, that woman who's like... That's really random. I I remember that. I was just like, oh, yeah, they don't go back to that. I mean, obviously, they just keep playing that he's a bit of a, a sleaze. Yeah, then, um, then then you kind of get like Angelica Houston is well, she gets that introduction when he kind of goes through the crew and stuff like that. But like she pops in, and then uh, Jeff Goldblum's character Alistair and stuff like that, and you get a sense within the first five minutes of this, like who Steve Zizou is, and like one of them is like he's charming, but at the same time he is a bit of a prick because like yeah, I, yeah, I've, I've got that in my notes. It's like he's a bit of a dick. Um, he's really egotistical, but I don't know if it's the Murray charm. It just makes him, he makes him really engaging. Mm, yeah, because Wes Anderson said, like, his two influences for the character were Jacques Cousteau and Bill Murray himself. And there are there, the, the moment uh, where the guy's asking him to sign all of those posters. I love that moment. Is from an actual moment uh, with Bill Murray. Really? And, on on set, he said to he said to Bill Murray, he's like, "Oh no, when you did that in real life, you did it like this." And he kind of had no no recollection of it. But kind of watching some of like the behind the scenes footage, and there's like people coming up to Bill Murray. Like at one point, someone shoves a phone in his face. He's like, "Oh, can you speak to my friend?" And like Bill Murray's just like, "This is the police. We've got your friend here. You better get down here right now." And it's like that that. It, Steve, yeah, there the the lines are very much blurred between yeah. Steve Zizou and Bill Murray, and it's like you just kind of I don't know. I I guess that plays to the film's strengths, but I can definitely see how that would turn some people off of the film in some way. Yes, I mean, um, I think that's why I maybe like was was drawn to uh, Wes Anderson's film because you know uh, we grew up big fans of Bill Murray. You know mm-hmm. we. Ghostbusters on regular repeat, um, you know, Groundhog Day. And yeah, you, know, you just love that sort of dry, deadpan delivery. And yeah, it was Rushmore. That was like his, you know, renaissance, wasn't it? That he was kind of in wilderness for a few years, and that kind of effectively gave him a new career and and a bit, you know, it's um but I think is after this, like he kind of moves to be being a supporting player in a lot of Wes Anderson stuff, has hasn't he? Yeah, so like the Darjeeling Limited, he kind of gets like a a cameo at best where he's like, the film starts with it looks like it's focused on Bill Murray, 
running running for the train and then it's like he's overtaken by the by the brothers <laughs> in the film and then it's like it's not about him at all yeah and it's, yeah it's, he's kind of got like a, a blink and you miss it role in um grand budapest isn't he? he's like one of the other hotel managers yeah the society of uh crossed keys cross keys yeah um but yeah he's just like He's he's brilliant in this. I say I'm I am a bit biased because I do love Bill Murray, and as you say, this is almost like Bill Murray at his Bill Murrayist, you know that sort of dry deadpan thing. And there's yeah so many brilliant deliveries, like you know when they ask him right at the start, what would be the the scientific purpose of of killing the shark, and he just sort of takes a beat and goes, well, revenge. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, um, I I, lo- I love that the, the, there's another moment early on with the like the guy who the heckler who says like who are you going to kill on your next adventure steve and like as, as i said like for a kind of setup for a film it, it perfectly portrays him that he's got this like he's got this mean streak in him where he's like he's obviously hurt but at the same time he has no way of 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 processing that in a kind of like uh controlled yeah controlled <laughs> manner in any way it's kind of like he's and i think it's something that wes anderson does really well in that like this is almost like a child's view of what an adult or what a celebrity is do you know what i mean it's like it's almost yeah. like written by a child it's like, like yeah we'll go out for revenge and like if somebody like i don't know like a teenage boy would be like yeah you just punch you just punch someone stuff like that and it's like um, well, that's it, and it's 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 the great thing is that he doesn't even um, you know he, he he attacks this guy and he doesn't even win. He comes away with like a bloody lip, yeah. And so it's like yeah, the fact that yeah, he is always sort of he's 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 you know he's up for for the fight, but he doesn't always win. Um, but I'd be I'd be interested to, and I don't know if you know this, like how much of uh, improvisation Wes Anderson allows because you know how much you, you can tell you know Murray is a great improviser, but. I imagine, you know, Wes Anderson is quite a control freak, and this is this is him in No Baumbach, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so whether there there is that a little bit because some of the lines feel very Murray esque, but so, as you say, because it's written with him in mind, maybe. So Bill Murray has said in regards to Rushmore around that time that like when he gets scripts, the way he looks at them is like, what do, what writing essentially do I have to do? on top mm. of this film like do you know what I mean like what improvisations have I got to put in like where can I elevate this script to and he said when he got the script for Rushmore he went this is written perfectly I'm going to do what's on like what's on yeah. the page I guess there's obviously leeway for like takes where it's like do you know what I mean like you go Play around with off. It. Yeah, yeah yeah but like I think and I think the way that well even more so with Wes Anderson's films later on it is that thing that everything is like a tight like stopwatch and it's it's all really like intricately done where it's like they, the lines almost have to be delivered yeah in a certain rhythm and well yeah watching watching a behind the scenes documentary like when he's trying to get like the the S you know when he's just shouting Esteban at the beginning in that in that video yeah. they've got Bill Murray in a tank and Wes Anderson is there, like, uh, saying to him, like, so I want one long Esteban, and then on the second two, I want it kind of, like, one after the other really quick. So, like, there, there is this thing of, like, you, you get a bit of Bill... And, yeah, and, and as you said, the film was written with, with Bill Murray in mind. Yeah, yeah. in mind. So I guess 
I, I guess it's that thing like, I don't know. We'll never know. I know. I think the script for this one is out there. So I would like to kind of see yeah. if there's a way to like. Compare both, the two. <laughs> compare the two. Yeah. I, don't, I imagine there probably is some, some Bill Murrayisms in there. And it's, mm. But I think, I don't know, because it's a difficult character to kind of, and it's, it, it, it's weird. And obviously like we've, we've mentioned Rushmore quite a lot, but I think they like uh, thematically, like work really well together because yes and their lead characters in both of them are like the best part like not likable like you are essentially like in in kind of like and yeah like if if they were a character populated in another film they would be like a villain almost they would be an antagonist because like you got this guy who's yeah he's on a thing of vengeance which is like quite immoral in the fact that it's like going after an endangered species he's happy to steal from like yeah a really nice guy who just happened to like for, for what we get from the film it's uh jeff goldblum's character was married to eleanor before before steve was so it's like yes. that thing of like you're almost like the dick in this situation where you're like the kind of i don't know you assume that he probably wooed eleanor away yes. from Alistair so it's like yeah yeah and he's also yeah it's quite clear that he's you know uses um a lot of Eleanor's parents money you know that's a sort of recurring theme throughout the film and yeah I think like with um it's interesting with it's, it's been a while since I've seen Rushmore as well but it feels like his character in Rushmore and his character in this there's that similarity of it's almost like he's going through what's well, not re- is it a midlife crisis it might be a bit beyond that but in terms of Yes, he's a dick. Yes, he's flawed. But he's almost like trying to make up for his mistakes by reconnecting with Ned. And, and yeah, he's, you know, he does seem to learn a bit by the end of the film. Yeah, but we get that weird thing with uh, the relationship between Ned and Steve, where it's like, it's kind of up in the air for most of it, whether like, does he care if he's his son or not? Or is he just or using he just him want the money? money? Yeah. 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 And it's yeah. Like, and you kind of like it kind of runs parallel with the character of Max Fisher, like kind of everyone in his life he kind of uses as a pawn in his game, whether it's like his chapel partner where it's like do his bidding and stuff like that, and it's like he's just got his end goal, and it's like and I think yeah, like it it makes for a really interesting i don't know, i I like the fact that there's that thematic kind of lineage through um Wes Anderson's career and even even down to the fact that I think uh, Max Fisher becomes infatuated by the the teacher because he finds a a Jacques Cousteau book in the library, and then there's like yeah these weird like uh, uh, things that kind of connect the films in that um, all of the photos of Mrs Cross's ex husband who died. He died by drowning, but all the photos of him in her room are photos of uh, Owen Wilson. So obviously he wrote the film, uh, okay. and then obviously Owen Wilson drowns. Oh yeah, in this in this film. Yeah. So it's like that thing of like it's almost like they're in this kind of weird shared universe. Or from what I know, Wes yeah. Anderson, Wes Anson had this story in his pocket for fifteen years. He said he kind of had this idea of an oceanographer. For, for all that time that's nuts because i was i was thinking is is owen wilson in every single wes anderson film in some form 
Um, I'm trying to. Find, I'm. I think. Yeah. I think so. I think he is like his. Cause yeah. They're, they're like. They're. I think they're friend. They're friends, right? And it's like they're, they're, Well, because yeah, because because did they? Because obviously they're in. It's both Wilson brothers in Bottle Rocket, isn't it? Um. But um, yeah, thinking that obviously we'll get to it later in sort of the connections. I was thinking, well, Owen Wilson's in every single one of his films, so there's there's some sort of connection there. Um, but yeah, I mean the 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 larger the larger cast in this is great. I mean Angelica Houston is is great. Just you know, as you know, they constantly referred to as the brains of of the operation, and just sort of just sitting there, sort of she's above it all. She's smoking away. Um, yeah, we've talked about you know uh, Willem Dafoe. Um, I just yeah, I love all the, the the smaller characters that aren't aren't you know don't get much to do, but they're still just all like you know working away and, and doing their stuff. So uh, Matthew Gray Goobler, who I think now people know him from Criminal Minds, he kind of plays like the um, quote unquote, like ev- every kind of show has it where it's like, are, are a character is, are they autistic? And they they seem to figure out all the crimes all the time. Like that's just right. kind of okay. like niche on that show, like uh, <laughs> their weird angle for it. He, yeah, he plays like the kind of curly haired intern who gets the machete, oh, right. the machete uh, through his shoulder who was Wes Anderson's actual intern at the time. Uh, That's amazing. And and let him, like, so there's, I think you can kind of see it throughout the film. He's recorded, he he got him to do uh, the making of documentary for the film. Like, so. Because I, I think I read, isn't the sound guy in the film, is he Wes Anderson's sound guy as well? Like the guy who's recording all the sounds. Yeah, so a lot of the, a lot of the people, so, um, uh yeah are, are kind of cohorts or named after so there's there's a guy who Wes Anderson worked with all the time called Wally Wolodowski and obviously in this we get Noah Taylor's character as Vladimir Wolodowski and it's like these like nice little nice little kind of so, link, yeah. yeah links to, to to people he knows and stuff like that and um him and Noah Baumbach tell a story of you know when Steve and uh, Ned go to the Explorers Club and there's those like young guys uh, taking the piss out of Steve. Yes, that that's based on like a, a story of one of their friends who who had like saw somebody who looked like an aging action star, told this story, going like, oh yeah, so and so did this, did that, and the other, and then at the end of it realized, oh shit, it was that is. Bruce Willis, I like Jimmy. <laughs> Brilliant. No, I I completely forgotten about that scene, and it's again, it's it's establishing their sort of re- relationship. But yeah, you kind of forget. Like it's a little bit cringeworthy when it's like, yeah, he's saying, oh yeah, apparently he hit on my my mate's fifteen year old niece, and you're like, ooh. But then you can kind of like kind of believe it with Suzu. He's he just has a go at anyone. Yeah, and it's it's, it's this weird thing as well. Like I totally forgot like how kind of homophobic steve comes across like in this because obviously like the first yeah because obviously there's the whole thing with jeff goldblum isn't it yeah and like i've how yeah like i should probably address this like how does that kind of like because there's obviously like this ongoing joke quote unquote where he's like keeps calling him a faggot or like saying like he's a queer and stuff like that and then obviously the payoff to that joke is at the end jeff goldblum's character says like Oh, he admits, well, I, doesn't he? Well, I am yeah. half gay, and it's like, yeah, did like I, I, 
it feels like a joke that would be in like a a, a teen sex comedy from like the early two thousands. Not this. Yeah, it it does feel a little bit of a cop out that they could have just had you know Jeff Goldblum being a little bit effeminate, and that's you know that's Steve's flaw that the fact that he's always belittling him for being you know camp. Um, but yeah, I, I I thought that like it's I don't know it kind of works in Goldblum's delivery. You kind of, you you kind of get away with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it is a it's one of the sort of more problem uh, tr- troublesome stuff, problematic, I should say. Yeah, and I guess uh, another thing like I've I've heard people mention before is obviously like the lack of female characters in this film and kind of like when they are there they don't really get to do much. So like the character of Anne-Marie Sakovitz, who when we meet her has got her, got her boobs out and or is kind of like just in like kind of a stick in the mud. At like she's the one who's like, you guys are going through uncharted waters and stuff like that. And it's yeah. kind of like, come on guys like that there's a whole there's a whole crew of people here. Why does it, why do you have to paint the woman to be like the one who's like, mm. But then, it, I mean, yeah, it depends on how you argue. Because you could you argue that all the blokes are idiots for following blindly following yes. Zizou, and and they, I say they do make it quite clear that Eleanor's the brains of the operation, and mm-hmm. she comes through and saves them multiple times. Um, I, I I I think like um, yeah, Angelica Houston amazingly, like kind of, she just has this like gravitas in any film that she's in. I guess. For me, like there's this weird thing that for years I had to shake off the image of the Grand High Witch from the Witches, and it's like, like all Morticia Adams as well. Yeah, yeah, but like, yeah. I'd, like I just have this like uncontrollable fear as a young kid of like the, the Grand High Witch. So it's like when I see her now, I can kind of put that to one side and be like, she is just like she has such like grace in this film as well. And yeah. it's like when, when she's on screen, which is like not not that much, but she gets. No. The, she gets to deliver like some are like I think I don't know some what yeah at least one of the most important lines in this film when uh, Steve tells her that they're going out on this expedition and she says well one of you's dead already and and you kind of like because it's kind I I don't know it's a bit grey that line because it's it's just after Ned has kind of um, joined. Well, he, yeah and he's drowned yeah. he's he's kind of because she asked like was his did his heart stop beating oh yes yeah that part where yeah, he's, he's in the in the training montage effectively. yeah yeah and, and and it's like and and then it kind of ties in once ned does die that the the camera pans down to the viewing platform and it's just kind of like lingers on a shot of angelica houston and it's kind of like that line almost plays like a I don't know, like the the Chekhov's gun of this film. It's like yeah, it's she, almost like prophetic. Yeah, yeah, like she, yeah, it's like that that whole scene is like, well, we're showing you he can't really swim, so it's gonna yeah. come up in the third act, everybody. <laughs> um, and she obviously has the, and again, I I'm, I kind of like had half forgotten, but she has the the killer twist that you know Ned is probably not Cece Sedan because he shoots blanks, and I love that sort of. You know, sort of. Don't ask me how I know. I'm a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and she she also delivers that line to Kate Blanchett. And um, yeah, what did you what do you make of Kate Blanchett's performance in this film? Um, 
I, it's, it's an odd one. I, I kind of like it, but it's sort of like, again, it's it's very random. It's, you know, I yeah, she has her her own subplot going on about her, her being pregnant and it being the editor's, you know, uh, baby and he's married and stuff like that. And she, you know, obviously she's part of the love triangle effectively, if it is a triangle between Steve and, and Ned. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a weird role, but it's obviously she's getting, gets Steve, uh, you know, Steve to react to certain stuff and, you know, is, is peeling away the layers with him. Um, but yeah, I don't know if if she's a likable person or whether she could be seen as annoying. But she's interesting, definitely. Yeah, I find I find her like fascinating in the fact that like, and I think it's that thing of like, I don't know, is it is it one piece too many in this kind of weird puzzle? Because it's like, I I guess you get that mirroring of the whole thing of like, because she delivers a line about um looking for like a, a father for her baby i think she like she's in shock and delivers she's like i'm looking for a baby for this father and like steve's mm. like I, I know exactly what you mean like because it's after the pi- the pirate attack or whatever and um you kind of get that mirroring of that thing of like so you have that ned looking for his dad and then you kind of get this thing of her then looking for like some kind of family yeah whatever it is and i think that's like at the core of this film is what it's about right it's that thing of like trying to find family and like family doesn't have to be like blood Blood. relatives yeah and it's kind of what we see with the kind of zizu gang is that they are kind of like this ramshackled i don't misfits of people who kind of don't fit in anywhere else and it's like we got a bus driver we got like a I don't know, like a supply teacher or whatever, and they're kind of like all coming onto this boat to to be a part of this family. Because then he, he even says that to Klaus. He says, uh, Esteban and I always thought of you as our little brother sort of type thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. um, Which Klaus so, yeah. says, what is it? He says that in, in response, like, I always saw you as two dads. And he's like, yeah. please don't tell anyone if that sounds a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is is there yeah is there any particular scenes that you really feel like we should kind of uh chew over and really get into um just having um having a think i mean i say that yeah there's there's so much like it goes off in so many little strands i say you've got the random bit with pirates you've got um the the sort of adventure part with you know sh- uh, hunting the jaguar shark and it's yeah, I don't know. I just I, I like the the fact that the Henry Selleck animation. Then obviously he would go on to do Fantastic Mr. Fox uh, and I Love Dogs. I haven't. I still haven't seen that, by the way. Um, but um, yeah, it's, it's. I really I love. It. I just adds to that sort of surrealness of the whole piece. Um, but yeah, uh, in terms of the, we haven't touched on the soundtrack. I mean, it oh. is you know it's a phenomenal soundtrack. So yeah, both the like I, I guess it's what we get with Wes Anderson films, right? You get like kind of yeah a two for one where it's like you get needle drops and then you get these, especially in this earlier stage of his career, you get the Mark Mother's Bow like uh, from Devo, his kind of like yes, I love I love all that like electro synthy yeah. stuff. It's brilliant. It's perfect, and you kind of like 
and it fits perfectly in this world because obviously Noah Taylor's character is when you're introduced to everyone, he is like the guy writing the music. So it's like, yeah, it all sounds like it's made on like little drum machines and Casio keyboards and stuff like that. Mm. And it's, um, I love the the kind of Zizou Society like theme, like that kind of like plinky plonky piano. It's like, yes, yeah, that that that, and then it kind of like gets almost like a remix at the end when they go down on the submarine he's like oh here's his ned's theme and it's kind of like mm. that with like a thumping bass drum and stuff like that and obviously you've got um as i mentioned earlier on you've got a brazilian singer uh, sue george doing all the bowie covers which is yeah amazing <laughs> And again, yeah, I say like we we listened to that loads when it, when it first came out, and it just adds again, yeah, just such a uniqueness to the film. Um, yeah, it's, it's great, and I, lo- I love the the bits in the like as you say, you know, you talked about logistics of filming on a real boat, but it makes makes the films like I love those sweeping shots of of that boat party at the start where it's constantly following back again, sort of soundtrack by Bowie. Um, but it's, you know, it's following to the, the front of the boat. I don't know my boat terms. Is it the prow? Um, and then and then and then back again. And it's focusing on all the different uh, you know conversations and stuff. I I think that's. I, I, and then again, you've got I say the the cross section of the the boat as well. I love all that stuff, and I love that throwaway line of you've got you know a, a spar inside. You've got a lab, a recording thing, but then he talks about the kitchen, which has the most advanced <laughs> equipment yeah, yeah. on the ship. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if the, is the pirate subplot, uh, one subplot too many? Uh, it just feels a little bit left field, but it, it is still, you know, it's, it's enjoyable, you know, how it does it with that, that whole set piece with the rundown hotel and stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, so I, I love that. Like when, when that stuff happens, as much as it is like a kind of like you could if you if you were strict with this film you could go in with scissors and go like let's get that out of there but i think it kind of adds like i don't know and it makes the film feel like you are almost watching one of steve sizu's like, it's like a fever dream isn't it yeah it's like it's one of his one of steve sizu it's like you're watching the film within the film almost and it's like or yeah. like hearing one of steve's stories of what happened and it's like maybe if you saw the real thing like it wasn't like that at all or whatever and yeah like, and you get some of the best com- comedy out of that as well just odd, odd. yeah well definitely and as you say it's, it's all you know it's set up at the start you know literally Chekhov's gun the fact that he he has that rule everyone carries a piece you know everyone has a gun and it's just sort of like but why do they need that and then obviously it's you know becomes apparent and yeah i, I love that it does just add to the surrealness and the absurdity of the fact that it does, you know, for, for five or 10 minutes turns into a bit of an action film with them storming this, you know, derelict hotel. Well, I think as well, it kind of like, it gets an audience, it's clever in the way that it gets an audience, like it really builds you up. Like it gets your heart racing as it were. And then yeah. like, it literally comes crashing down when we like see Steve at his lowest, but at the same time, he's, he's always on in a way. Cause he says like, when he falls down the stairs, he's like, uh, "Did you get that? Like, did 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 you see that?" And he's like, "He's like, th- th- this is what the film is." And it's like this film feels like it is a meditation on filmmaking and very specifically like Wes Anderson's way of like making a film. Like even like yeah, 
right up at like that thing with film festivals, like opening and closing the film at a film festival, and like that thing of you have this you have this mission to to seek this pure like mythic creature which almost could be like a film where you're like i'm trying to get this unattainable thing but at some point you've just got to let it go and kind of like the way they're looking through the like viewfinder in the submarine it's kind of framed like it's a like it's a tv screen essentially and yeah kind of all looking at it swim away and it's like kind of him saying like let's just wash our hands let's just like the fi- uh, yeah, the film is go. done yeah 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 um, uh, and yeah, there's like you know that bit at the end with the jaguar shark again, like uh, the, sort of just just uh, brings me back to my uni days of listening to Seagull Ross on repeats and just oh, it's beautiful <laughs> music. I have no idea what they're saying, but it's so beautiful. <laughs> um, but it is a really touching moment, even though yeah, I say it is it is absurd. You've got you know how many people in that <laughs> two man sub, and it even has a little sign saying no more than two people in. Um, and you've got yeah the Henry Selick's stop motion animation, but it is it's a beautiful scene. It's it's really nice and it's really I don't know why it's touching, but it, it is it, you know even though it's so ridiculous, it, it still manages to come across as touching. And it's I suppose that's just the power of of filmmaking in terms of the editing, the music, and and everything. I think the thing that works really well with this film as well is is the fact that you kind of get blindsided where you've you've been following a character throughout it where you go like oh he's 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 a bit of a dick and then by the end of it you're like i actually really care what happens to him and like by the time kind of credits roll we get that like amazing like thing of like everyone joining him as he's like i love that walking down the yeah walking down the pier and you've got uh even Werner, who's in his kind of steve zizou-esque um lederhosen now and like everyone's yeah 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 everyone's like and it's i fucking like i want to be a part of that team and it's like yeah it's 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 well i was thinking that in terms of the steam that the uh the steam suzu uh uniform obviously they talk about the uh, he has his own uh adidas um and did they actually really believe suzu limited edition adidas three stripes you know the i don't think i I, I remember um, those retro trainers I looked a while ago and there might have been like a very small run at the time, but they kind of, you can get like people have customized, I guess it's like Sambas. I think you can kind of, or like there's a, there's a certain style that you can, yeah. you can like essentially get an all white pair. Is and it then, called gazelles? Are gazelles. They gazelles. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They are essentially gazette like, yeah. I, I, I don't know why they, 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 they haven't done it as like, I don't know, a ten, like t- in 2014, the 10 year anniversary or I don't, but part of me thinks like maybe it's a Wes Anderson thing where he's like, I like it for the film, but then if I like do it as like a corporate tie in outside of the film, I don't want to be a sellout. <laughs> yeah. Then it's gross. Do you know what I mean? Like in, in the same yeah. way he didn't, he didn't really want to cast the kid from Dennis the Menace in Rushmore as his chapel partner. Cause it's like, <laughs> He's been in something really successful. It's like you've also got Bill Murray, who was in the is in Ghostbusters too. So like you can't you can't you can't pick and choose when you want to like deal, only deal with cool people. Um, so I'm just trying to think of like any any other areas that we have missed out on. I guess I don't. The, the, 
how does yeah how do how does it make you feel about like the death of uh, Ned in this? How do you think it's handled within the film? Uh, that's a good point because it's one of my issues with um, Wes Anderson. In all, in all honesty, that I remember people raving about how much they loved uh, Grand Budapest, and it, has, it is one of those films that has grown on me. But I didn't like it as much first time round because a lot of his films have this melancholy, this this sort of bittersweet ending um, that always ends in a sort of a death. Of, is it always like necessary? So, you know, for example, in Grand Budapest, you have obviously what happens to Gustav, mm-hmm. but then it's, um, I can't remember the lead, the, um, what's the lead character in it called again, the, the bellboy? Uh, Zero. Zero. Zero's wife, you know, they get together, but then she dies. You know, it's all as part of like the epilogue sort of type yeah. thing. And that kind of like depressed me slightly. And I suppose it's less so in this and it kind of all ties into the storytelling but it always seems like it's a recurring theme in a lot of his films there there has to be there's a little bit of a, a, you know a, a, an element of tragedy uh towards the end it's, it's like they can't get away from especially him and noah baumbach together they, they can't get away from this kind of naval gazy new york thing where it's like it can be funny but it's gotta have a bit of like pathos and sadness at the end it's yeah like, it, it can't be Tuesday. It can't be all zany. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. The, the, I think the thing that really elevates that is, is the the choice of song for his funeral. That that zombies track is absolutely like it. It, flo- it, it, it floors me every time, and even like the build up to it, where it's got Scott Walker's Thirtieth Century Man as they're kind of getting ready to go up in the helicopter and stuff like that, and it's like, yeah, I hadn't well. I hadn't watched this for years until like, I kind of watched it again recently and then rewatched it again today for the podcast. And it's like, I'd kind of forgotten about the fact that like Ned dies and it's, I, I don't know, like what watching it again recently and that like, that's that whole scene where you get that, that letter. And it's like, it's almost like Steve saying like, well, it doesn't matter either way if you're my son, like, I still want you to be part of my life. Yeah, I, yeah. It's like, yeah. and it's. I, I think I, I don't know. And it's, it's well, well <laughs> there is a case and to be. I was going to say, and the, the fact is that his his death, it just seems a little bit over the top. That the fact that they've they've crashed, mm-hmm. and then he's kind of like he's bleeding mysteriously from something. They don't really establish like the the helicopter goes straight down, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, and I'm I'm bleeding to death, and I'm dead, and it's sort of like. Did he? And I keep saying, like, did he have to die? But mm. yeah, I suppose it's it's all part of that bittersweet tale. Well, the thing is, because it, it kind of has that like bizarre, like, well, I think it's like done really well. But those like interesting shots and cuts where it goes from like a flash of red, a flash of white, like the bubbles under the ocean. Yes, and Ned. Asking yeah, that kind of. Re- yeah, it kind of re- um, reminded me, even though I have I haven't seen very little, but it, it felt very sort of. 60s you know cinema mm. a little bit you know is it maybe maybe it's Truffaut or something like that like where there's yeah as you say like jump cuts random sort of inserts and it's a bit disorientating but I did like it yeah it's a good, good cool I, bit of style I, I thought if they'd kind of left it as that and that kind of like that let us know that he had died like do you know what I mean? yeah I think the audience is smart enough to realize with that like and then yeah it's, it's kind of a, of a, a a damp fish like when they kind of have that like because it's a bit of a nothing conversation afterwards but yeah. i guess i guess it's the thing of like 
they need that shot because they need the funeral, right? So there kind of yes. needs to be the body. It can't just be like he he never resurfaces from the water. I don't know. Like, yeah, and I suppose it is just that like we need to make this absolutely clear he's dead, and it's it is him. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, um, let's yeah, let's get on to some couple of connections in regards to this film. Uh, could you find any other links? between this film and any other couple of films with either people who've worked on it or in it? So uh, I've, I've made a list. I made a list. Perfect. So, um, cause I was, I, I listened to one of your, your, your previous episodes and there was a lot of connections. I, like, Oh God, I'm gonna have to do my homework here. <laughs> um, but obviously the, 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 the biggest connection in this is Murray himself. So he's done at least two films with Sophia Coppola. He's done two big films. So he did obviously this uh, Lost in Translation and uh, on the that most recent one he did on the rocks. I, I haven't seen that yet. Have you? No, that's uh, that that is on that is obviously on the list for me. But there's so so many films I have to kind of get around before I get to that. But one. it was also one of those because it's exclusive to Apple TV, and you're like, oh, really? I, Can I, you I, not make it? <laughs> yeah, another free trial. Else? Another free trial. Like, oh, really? And it's only a um, seven-day free trial as well. They get yeah. you with that one. Uh, but actually, my my, uh, I just remember my wife does have a an Apple TV thing, so I might have to check <laughs> that out. Um, so yeah, you've obviously got um, Murray and and Sophia Coppola. Um, Obviously, you had Wes Anson and uh, Jason Schwartzman. Jason Schwartzman's not in this. He's like probably the one Anderson film he's not in. He seems like he's in every, nearly every other one. Is he? I don't know if he's in Moonrise, Moonrise Kingdom. But... Yeah, he plays Cousin Ben in Moonrise Kingdom. Right, he, okay. He's not in the Royal Tenenbaums, which like uh, it's really interesting. I've, I found out recently that the character of Mordecai, the, the Falcon, was supposed to be another character but like he realized there's too many moving parts and cut <laughs> cut the character out so that was going to be Jason Schwartzman's character was a, a, an actual i don't know a person that Richie would have met as opposed to chatting to oh, a okay. falcon bizarre um <laughs> so um a bit of a tenuous uh connection but Michael Gambon was in uh Layer Cake which is a Matthew Vaughan film and then Matthew Vaughan did Kick-Ass with Mr Nicholas Cage Perfect. Um, also, uh, Willem Dafoe was in the Spider-Man films, and Mr. Cage was in Into the Spider-Verse as Spider-Man Noir. I love it. <laughs> uh, and then I do, I've got just Jeff Goldblum question mark and Angelica Houston question mark. I feel like they've been in so many films that there's bound to be. So I'm waiting for you to school me on this. So there's Jeff bound Gold to be some connections. Jeff Goldblum. Weirdly, there is no connections, which I kind of really? found like baffling uh apart from like the obvious uh other uh oh actually there is two connections that aren't wes anderson films which is jurassic world fallen kingdom and jurassic world dominion which are both uh lensed by john schwartzman like the, uh, okay. the cinematographer uh, angelica houston is in francis ford coppola's gardens of stone She's in the Darjeeling Limited, which obviously uh, stars Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. Isle of Dogs, she's in as well, and she's okay. in a Michael Jackson-like film that Francis Ford Coppola did in the eighties called Captain EO. Never heard of it. Yeah, it's uh, I I <laughs> I, I, ha I hadn't until I kind of like did the research for this podcast. It's like 
I'm not sure if if, if I have to watch that one because it's like an extended music video, I think. I don't think it's a feature film, and it's like, oh dear. I don't really want to be talking about Michael Jackson either. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I am a completist, but I've got to draw the line somewhere. Exactly. Um, There's some Willem Dafoe connections uh, with regards to Nicolas Cage. So he was in Dog Eat Dog with Nicolas Cage and Wild at Heart. And then uh, there's a Mark Mothersbaugh uh connection to nicholas cage in that he scored the new crudes movie uh okay. crudes a new age so yeah there's that one and michael gambon is also in the terrible christmas carol the movie which uh is a 2001 uh simon Ca- gallo like starring adaptation of a i was christmas gonna say because there's, there's one with patrick stewart that's supposed to be terrible as well I was thinking it might be that one, but no, the, it, it seems like it's one that's like, well, let's just churn out another one. We'll get some Brit in it and we'll put it on TV. It'll be fine. Well, it's it's got Nicolas Cage as Marley's ghost. And it's like... For, sold. Uh, I'm sold. But for how bombastic Nicolas Cage normally is in films, he, like, he sounds like somebody going, oh, I'm a ghost. It's like, really? Like it's like a couple of years earlier, this guy was cast a fucking Troy, and now like, and you can you can tell they cast him for that reason. Like he's going to be fucking off the wall. He's going to be bringing yeah. his own chains and everything. <laughs> he is going to be brilliant. And he's like, oh guys, um, I'm just going to play it really low. I'm like no, Nick, no, go crazy. We want crazy. Yeah. So obviously, like, yeah, and it's animated as well. And it's so Kate Winslet is in it. And there was a song that Kate, like the only song that Kate Winslet has ever sung was for that film. So if you remember, uh, without, without looking to, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother Googling it because it'd probably take me a while to find it. But yeah, it's a very, a very bizarre animated film that you should not watch at Christmas ever. Um, apart from that, there's, yeah, all of the other kind of Coppola connections are very, uh, are very obvious in regards to the Wes Anderson connection. Mm. And a Sophia one that you missed is she directed A Very Murray Christmas, the Netflix uh, special. I, yes, I, I didn't realise she was behind that. I knew of A Murray Christmas, and it wasn't until I was going through the notes I saw. Uh, I saw that I haven't seen it, which is bizarre, because I say I'm a big fan of Murray, but it just seemed a bit weird. I'm just like, is what is this? Is Is it going to be any good, or is it going to be cringe? yeah it's um it, i think it's full somewhere in between those two things like it's, i'm uh, always a bit dubious of these yeah christmas specials it's like oh really and roman coppola again was second unit director on a very murray christmas and ah, well there you go just a, a weird thing that i will have to cover at some point is he directed the mariah carey uh christmas special that came out on apple tv last year i think my wife did watch that so that is directed by Roman Coppola. So, like, I was going to of... say, so that was going to be my question. Has he? What's the biggest thing that he's directed solely? Like, has sole credit for? So he has directed three films. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. So I know two of them are. He did a film called uh, C- uh, CQ from the year 2000, and has directed a film called Inside the Mind of Charles Swan the Third which right, is okay. yeah which stars bill murray and has like a kind of um 
I think Charlie Sheen's in it, Patricia Arquette, and there's like a lot of like kind of uh, Wes Anderson alumni in that film as well. So I think Jason Schwartzman pops up. So okay, uh, I, I, the fact that like not many people have heard of it, I, I am trepidatious to whether it is any good. But uh, yeah, I guess uh, yeah, listen to a future episode where uh, I, I delve into that one. Well, yes, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a funny one with like. Again, it's something that you sort of delve into in terms of like film knowledge, in terms of you know first direct, second unit, and stuff like that. That I, like it's something that I've uh, I was reading recently. Um, you know, the have you heard of the stuntman Vic Armstrong? He did like yeah. he, was, he was Indiana Jones and Superman, and did a lot of the Bond films. But he became in his late career like a very accomplished second unit director and i think he only directed one film but it seems like once you get in that sort of not pigeonhole but you kind of you're quite happy with that like yep i'll i'll just carry on doing second unit and it it seems it's a bit of a, an anomaly in my mind like well surely you want to keep going until you get into that you know <laughs> overall director well roman coppola is very interesting in the fact that like he's kind of got a lot of like strings to his bone that like He's a producer on a lot of stuff. He now runs American Zoe Trope, the oh, does he? Okay, the studio that yeah, Francis Ford Coppola started and has like got TV projects. I'm not sure if you ever saw the Amazon Prime original uh, Mozart in the Jungle. I um, heard of it. Is that was that with Gail Garcia Bernal? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that is created by Jason Schwartzman, Roman Coppola. Uh, Paul Whites and Alex Timbers. So, and like, he's got like directing credits for a load of the episodes on that show. So it's like that thing of like, he he is like the kind, of, yeah, he's like the shadowy figure in the back of the Coppola family. Like, I don't know. I guess, I guess if it if he if he were in the submarine at the end, he would very much be like Jeff Goldblum's character, like poking his Sweet. head up at the back. Yeah, yeah, or, or the or the Bond Company stooge. <laughs> oh, I love uh, oh. I love him and and I forgot about that that killer line when Jeff Goldblum's like is this my coffee machine and it's like where did it come from and he's just like uh we fucking stole it man he he's amazing Bud Court and he's another one where it, it I find it bizarre where Wes Anderson has said like we wrote that role specifically for him and it's it's that thing of like I don't know I I, I guess what Anderson would have had the cachet at this time for people to say to people like can you come in to do like these small roles? Because like, yeah, I've written it. Well, I suppose it's a good way to win the moment. I've written it specially for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like Sir George. Like, he doesn't really. Well, he gets. I guess he got a whole like David Bowie. Like, uh, got an album out of it. He got an album out of it, <laughs> and like, as much as he doesn't say anything, he does loads. And yeah. he kind of like he's great when he's on screen, and then he gets these moments where it's like like that brilliant one where he's singing uh yeah the bowie track on the back of the boat and it's as the pirates turn up and stuff like <laughs> yeah. that yeah he's completely oblivious yeah he's like singing starman i think it is yeah. at that point um so let's get on to rating this film and the way i do that on this podcast is asking you what would be the perfect wine pairing for this film well i think because it's uh it's set in and around Italy, uh, I'm thinking something, uh, something red, something Italian, something maybe you know a lot of. I like a lot of Italian reds, so maybe something you know like a um, a Nero Di Volo, something like that, or you know something fruity, 
Um, yeah, I think it'd have to be a, a, something, an Italian red, something punchy like that. Perfect. I'm going to go off piste with this one and say this is the perfect film to drink a uh, a Campari on the rocks with. Well, I am currently drinking a, a Campari and tonic in in uh, in honor of Mister Zisu. So that's probably the little you know that you can hear the, the the tinkling of ice in my Campari. <laughs> perfect. So, how much are we paying for this bottle of wine? Is it is it are we, are we sticking on the the first page of the menu or are we 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 flipping over to the other side where? <sighs> I think in sort of, well, it, you know, there obviously is that throwaway line in the film about like when the guy goes to serve wine to Owen Wilson, he's like, no, serve it to me, that he knows nothing about yes, wine. Yes. So I think I think it has to be a good wine. I think it has to be at least page two because you don't want to be seen as being a bit of a skinflint or not knowing <laughs> about wine. So go for the middle page and you're in sort of safe territory. I like at that point as well that like, uh, he he wouldn't have been able to afford that bottle of wine. That like yes, do you know what I mean? He's probably like yeah, just put it on like uh, put it on like Michael Gambon's character's account or whatever. Like or I've I've got some credit here. Like people know me. Like um, so, would you recommend people check out this film if they haven't already? It's it's a funny one on uh, this one because I think Wes Anderson is an acquired taste, mm-hmm. and I think there are a lot of people that don't don't get him or just don't like him it's quite i can understand why people some people might see it as a little bit pretentious a little bit too whimsical mm-hmm. um and yeah so i you know it's it's, it's, it's an acquired taste of comedy it's quite dry it's quite surreal it's not like your clear gags and setup um but i i love it i think it's it's um it's it's probably my my favorite wes anson film uh i think it's it's got Yes, um, a great, you know, lead, uh, one of Bill Murray's best performances. Um, I just love how random it is, how surreal and, and, and quirky. But so, yeah, I would, I would definitely, if you're a fan of Wes Anderson's films and you haven't seen this, uh, which <laughs> I imagine is a bit of a, a stretch, or a fan of Bill Murray and haven't seen this, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, I would also recommend it to any Bowie fans. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think that's a, 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 a must. So yeah, it's it is definitely a tricky one with Wes Anderson because I realise you know it's a bit like in a way um, Napoleon Dynamite. I love that film, but I realise that it's just a bit weird for some people's sense of humour that they just don't get it. That's a that's a, that's a yeah that's a perfect uh, comparison to make for the for these two films. And like I I don't know because there's an element of me where it's like i love i love this film like i'm just like and i think it's the first wes anderson i may have seen uh so like and i had this like i don't know i think i found it with a lot of like i've been revisiting a lot of the wes anderson films uh, recently they kind of hit you differently at what what stage of life you watch them so like with with something like this it's like when i was younger i was like kind of swept away in the swashbuckling of it all and kind of like being like yeah that would be great and like kind of like almost uh relating to steve do you know what i mean that kind of thing and i think it's like at the end of the film where like he uh he reads the article that she's written about him uh the the journalist and says like Oh, people are going to think I'm a bit of a blowhard, like yeah, a bit of a blowhard and a bit of a prick. And it's like that thing of like, as you get older, you realise like, oh, yeah, like you start to realise not necessarily those things, but you kind of get a bit more self awareness. And it's like, yes, 
this film happens to be about a man in his 50s getting some self-awareness but i think like i've definitely i'm a lot more self-aware than i was when i first saw this film as like a teenager going like that's really cool well yeah i i um to echo your, your point you had earlier like um there's there's so much going on in these films that they do stand up to repeat mm-hmm. watches and i think yeah they do benefit from like i say i wasn't um the biggest fan of grand budapest when i first saw it but the more i watch it the more i enjoy it and the more i get out of it but yeah as i say they his his style is an acquired taste but at the same time it's amazing how he has created his own style and as i say how instantly recognizable his style is yeah and i think like you mentioned this is like the first film that really kind of like we're in wes anderson land now do you yeah. know what i mean like whereas the royal tenenbaums like it's kind of got a foot in both worlds where it's like it's new york but it's wes anderson's new york whereas this is mm-hmm. like proper sort of crazy town <laughs> yeah yeah you're in crazy yeah because yeah, it's like it's not i don't know even though it's italy it's like that it it doesn't fit it feels like this fairy tale like a uh, picture book version of what italy is as opposed to like a real place um so let yeah let me ask you uh which is proving to be one of the most difficult questions on the podcast um which couple of family member would you keep but in doing so, you have to get rid of the filmography of everyone else in the family. This is is a really tough one. <laughs> um, and I am just going to go for, for the cop-out answer and just say, you've. I mean, you know, Godfather and Godfather 2 are, you know, two masterpieces. Um, I say I need to, I, I do need to revisit the conversation. It's been a while since I've seen that, but I remember that being very good. So, yeah, I don't know. I... But then again, Lost in Translation is one of my favourite films. I think that's a great film. But then, I'm not overly—I don't—I'm not overly bowled over by Sofia Coppola's other films. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think I am just going to cop out and say, yeah, you've got to keep the Godfather and Godfather Part Two, and and obviously the other stuff that he's done. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, that 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 is like I think I think that is the surefire front runner at the moment. And it's, it's interesting to hear people's interpretation of it. Some people are like ultimately selfish with their uh, answers where it's like, well, I love this film, so I'm keeping that person. Whereas other people are like the greater good of cinema would be at its best. If Francis Ford Coppola, for instance, were, were kept because it's like, it's it's amazing how far, you know, the, the whole point of, you know, you doing this podcast, like how far the couple of connections, how run, how deep it runs, because mm-hmm. yeah, it was, um, I was listening to your, your conversation episode with uh, Rich from, from Better Max. And he mentioned about, but that means I'd have to get rid of Rocky four. And I'm just like, Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just all these like connections of like, but, but that's such a beloved film. But then you're like, on the other hand, you're like, but it's Godfather. It's Godfather yeah. one and two. Yeah, and it's that whole it's that whole like you get rid of Francis Ford Coppola, then you think of like the ramifications on cinema, and it's like yeah, but a lot of people are like you you then lose Star Wars or you then lose yeah, and if you lose Star Wars, you lose Star Trek, and it's like it's the films the films wouldn't have been made without the without the kind of success of Star Wars to be like yeah, because he was. Uh he was lucas's uh, sort of mentor in a way wasn't he yeah so lucas uh won a competition through his university to be on set at warner brothers and it happened to be that uh, Francis ford coppola was filming finian's rainbow 
and saw him wow. acro- across the kind of lot. And he was like the only person on the lot because it was kind of like handing over of the baton between old and new Hollywood. And it's like yes. ev- everyone on the set was like 50 plus. And then there's these two young guys with beards. And like, <laughs> two bearded nerds. Yeah, two bearded <laughs> nerds. And they kind of went, bang like let's and then yeah yeah. do you want do you want to hang out (laughs) yeah and then it's like like even if you look back as like uh american graffiti like that's produced by francis ford coppola yeah thx uh one one say that's yeah that's that's one one three eight yeah is is released like through american zoetrope and it's like yeah like i think i don't know what people think of george lucas and that it's like that is that is something that has come up time and time again on this podcast. It's like that is that is a kind of like. No, it's a good point saying you know the the bigger ramifications of of cinema and definitely blockbuster cinema can be yeah can definitely be traced back to him. Yeah, even talk about the Godfather. It's like films. I think it's mentioned in the kind of uh, Easy Riders Raging Bull where they kind of say like a film had never done them numbers until that film came out. So it's like yeah, and it's kind of, that kind of maybe put the uh the stepping stones so we got a jaws which then put the stepping stone so we got star wars and it's like yeah we could we could talk about this for hours but let's not um (laughs) so let me ask you are the coppolas the greatest film family of all time no that would be the baldwins so you've got (laughs) uh alec billy Stephen and the other one, <laughs> you know, to quote that um, that thing from South Park, the movie. What's the worst thing about being a Baldwin? Nothing. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I, I think yeah. In in serious, I think obviously, as you've uncovered, the the, the Coppola's definitely seem to be one of the you know widest reaching families in in uh, you know cinema, um, and the most varied. So I'd have to say yeah, they're probably in terms of talent in front and behind the camera you have yeah you do have a lot of acting families like you know uh you know the sheens and stuff and i'm I'm trying to think of obviously yeah you have the baldwins but in terms of i say talent across you know behind and in front of the camera i think it's gonna be hard to top the coppolas yeah i think i've kind of like set up a very impossible question with that one because i like i've given a family where it's like they do everything. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're everywhere. Very, yeah, they're very much like they've monopolized Hollywood in a way, right? It's like it's like a secret society. They've yeah. embedded themselves in <laughs> everywhere. Actually, I am also a coupler. That, that's going to be the big reveal at the end. I'll, I'll, I'll pull off my face in a kind of uh, Mission Impossible esque fashion, and I, I will be Francis Ford Coppola underneath. Well, I was going to say. This. Is instead of you know like um, in the Marvel instead of uh, you know Hail Hydra, it's going to be Hail Coppola. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to be like a, a Coppola scroll at the end. I'm just going to tra- <laughs> transform into one of them. Perfect. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to really figure out by doing this podcast is, you mentioned it's one of your favourite films. Uh, what does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Now that is a uh, a very tough one, uh, and I was thinking about this, and I'm pretty sure he says, "I hear the Avengers is going to be awesome." <laughs> I love it. Um, or, or the other one, I was, the other line I was trying to think of is that uh, is, is Scarlett Johansson's uh, boyfriend, and that is it Giovanni Ribisi. Mm-hmm. He's he's definitely punching very very high in that film. <laughs> so it'd be something along those lines of like he's a very lucky man. Perfect. That's a, that's an amazing answer. Uh, George, 
again, uh, before I let you go, can you tell us where people can find yourself and Retro Ramble online? Yeah, so uh, Retro Ramble should be available on all good and bad podcast apps <laughs> and services. Um, you can even listen to it. We do have a a website, retroramble.blog, uh, so you can uh, just listen to it through the website. But we're on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page. We're on Twitter, Instagram, though I don't post as much on Instagram. <laughs> um uh, and yeah, so um, I say we're we're across sort of most uh, social media, uh, but yes, uh, retro ramble. I say we're a monthly podcast, so um, yeah, check us out if you're interested in sort of eighties and nineties blockbuster and cult type movies. I would very much. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring and saying, if 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 you're not listening to them, guys, make sure you listen to them. Right now, Thank there's you, some sir. fun. Yeah, I, I recently listened to your Blade episode. After kind of doing, I got, I went down a rabbit hole, being like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch all the Blade films, and then I'm like, yeah, like love, love the episode <laughs> on that. And uh, and then you got to the third one, I'm like, oh dear. Yeah, I think I fell. I think because I, I kind of did them in a day, and I fell asleep. But uh, during the third one, I went, I've got no, I'm not compelled in any way to 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 pick that up and watch the rest of it so i've seen it's, a, it's such a it's such a sharp drop after the first two. it's like they're, they're great films and then it just goes Ooh. um but yes no uh it was a lot of fun I, blade was one of those films that we charlie and i hadn't seen in a long time so it was a lot of fun to to go back and revisit that and it's it's amazing how influential you know because it was pre-matrix as mm-hmm. well um so like how influential and before the whole marvel machine that dominated cinemas and tv well, George, thank you very much for coming along for this sea exploration adventure with me and making some Coppola connections. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's been an absolute delight and uh, it's been a lot of fun talking about a, a very fun film. So, yes, thanks for having me. There we go, guys. A massive thanks for listening. And again, a massive thank you to George for coming on this sea exploration with me. As it's already been said, and I'll say it again, be sure that you do check out Retro Ramble. It is a fantastic dive into nostalgia and all things good. If you enjoyed this episode on The Life Aquatic with Steve Sisu, be sure to check out my podcast family it's not a network it's a family cohorts over on the pod charles cinecast where they are currently doing a week by week swap over between wes anderson and paul thomas anderson movies they will be covering the life aquatic with steve zizu probably in much more detail uh, in a few weeks time so be sure to check that out as well as all the other great stuff they're doing as for next week on the podcast i'll be joined by the other mcgee brother charlie to talk about spike jones's 1999 meta mind-bending comedy drama being john malkovich 
As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can do that on all the socials. So that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd, all at Caged In Pod. Or you can drop me an email, which I would love you to do with a little voice note of what you think of any of the upcoming or previous films that we've covered on the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this on right now. As always, I've been Petrus Patsilavus, your guide through the crazy world of the Coppola family tree. So remember to keep it Coppola, and I'll be sure to catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged in Coppola Connections, a Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.